Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 77, Edward I and Reconstruction. We left Edward last week at his coronation, eyeballing his magnets and declaring to all of them that everything would be different from now on. Let's just rerun that coronation promise again. He's never going to put the crown on again until he's recovered the lands given away by his father to the earls, barons and knights of England and to aliens. So, okay, there better be no thought about pushing the king around or showing him the hand. Baronial faces had better be listening. The truth is that Edward did face something of a challenge. The last years of Henry's reign had seemed pretty uneventful and peaceful, and indeed they were. But under the surface nothing had changed from the bad old days. The magnates settled down to a country where royal power didn't get in their way very much at all, and they could get on with the things they'd been doing before de Montfort came onto the scene, ignoring the royal sheriff and running things their way. Meanwhile, there's been a wave of crime and general lawlessness, because the rest of the nation had been on Benzedrine for the last few years, the Benzedrine had been taken away, and it wasn't going to be easy to kick the habit. One of the signs of this was the fuss that went on at Evesham. The sight of de Montfort's death quickly became a point of pilgrimage. In the late 1260s and early 1270s, over 200 miracles were recorded at the Battle Well. People of all social rank rubbed shoulders as they came to get a piece of de Montfort's magic. The records show us the great and the good, in the form of Robert de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, and the Masters of the University of Oxford, Countesses, Lords, as well as just the good, village constables, carpenters, millers, tailors and so on. Elsewhere, the peasantry continued to struggle and challenge their lords through courts. In these struggles, the spirit of de Montfort lived on. 
Edward would prove a much better politician than his father. He was to work much more with and through Parliament. And he clearly had a sense of the peasants as an integral part of his nation. At one point, one of his bits of legislation declared, We are all to obtain one reward in Christ, whether of servile or free condition. And in his reforms, there was some benefit for the peasantry in stricter royal control. But in practical terms, the gap between peasant and lord and peasant and crown widened through his reign. The constant and massively increased pressure of taxation to fund Edward's wars basically hit the free peasantry hardest. When the tax collectors came to town, for example, the big guys could often find ways to take the king's men to one side, slip them a few pence or give them a slap-up supper. And in return, magically, they'd get a nice low tax assessment. The peasants simply didn't have the resources for this. So they ended up with a full-fat assessment. So when Edward began to restore the power and independence of the royal officials and sheriffs, no doubt this is the right thing to do, and better than the chaos of magnates doing exactly what they please. But it's a bit doubtful that your average Joe drew any great financial advantage from it. There's a quote, for example, that survives from a peasant called Nicholas Franciscus who declared that the king's bailiffs deserved to be hanged because they never did good when they could do ill. The point about all of this is that in 1274 and well beyond, and indeed increasingly into the 14th century, as a background of class struggle, if you'll pardon the anachronism, of exclusion from the political process of the unfree peasant. Just to illustrate the point, there's a triumphal poem from Leicester Abbey, after a bunch of the Abbey's upstart villains took them to court to try to prove that they were free and inevitably lost. Here we go. What can a serf do except serve and his son? He shall be a pure serf deprived of freedom and the law's judgment and the king's court prove this. Not great poetry, but of course it's a delightful sentiment. A sort of victory dance on the corpse of the losing side. The point of all this is that Edward faces discontent and dysfunction after he arrived home. His leisurely return home hadn't helped, since the regency that managed things while he was away was necessarily less effective than when they had their new king with them. And meanwhile, the royal finances were not looking good. While Edward had champagne tastes and ambitions, his finances could only buy him beer. At the start of his reign... Edward's revenue was about £25,000. Now, for those of you who have been carefully taking notes throughout this series, or indeed just have wonderful memories, you'll probably pipe up at this stage and say, well, that ain't half bad. But in fact, it's rubbish. It's rubbish because we've had a deal of inflation over the last century, of about three times. So that although £25,000 is equivalent to Henry I's revenue in 1130, in terms of value, it's probably just the equivalent of £8,000 from Henry's time. And one of the reasons for this was the amount of domain lands the king had and the revenue he got from it. Henry I got £10,000 a year from crown lands, the equivalent of about £30,000 in Edward's time. Edward, meanwhile, got a measly, mingy, mournful £6,000, 
one-fifth of what Henry actually got in value. Because so much royal land had been given away for patronage, keeping people sweet, that sort of thing. So the money that had made Henry I chuckle, rub his hands in glee and call for another roast chicken could make Edward pull in his belt a notch and order thin gruel and water all round. Not that Edward was ever noted for ordering thin gruel and water, but you know what I mean. Edward did have many advantages as he tackled these problems. First was that he started with a reputation and a certain level of fear and respect that Henry never managed to attain. He stood there in Westminster Abbey, looking the part. Okay, droopy eyelid and all, but a big bloke. He'd done his porridge on crusade, and despite the complete lack of any practical successes, that doesn't seem to have affected the reputation he came back with. He was the model of a martial medieval king. That included a bit of piety, but not the -the over-the-top type like Henry with his constant mumbling and feeding of thousands of poor people. It was, you know, an honest, manly, slap-you-on-the-back kind of piety, not too much grovelling around. And, of course, he was something of a god in the fighting department. He'd been a wow on the tournament scene in his youth. He'd personally beaten de Montfort at Evesham. He'd had a direct part in suppressing the various rebellions afterwards. No, those magnates in Westminster Abbey might look at Edward and distrust him. They might look at him and fear or dislike him, but none of them would have felt they could safely ignore him. And also, Edward had what you might call a young, vigorous team about him. I'm conscious of slipping quietly into corporation speak, for which I apologise. Edward himself is 35, and at his right hand is a chap called Robert Burnell. There used to be an old saying that behind every successful man is a successful woman, which of course is clearly these days unacceptable. But I mention it purely in the interests of historical context. Well, the relevant expression for your medieval king was more like, behind every successful king is an administrative genius. And Robert Burnell is Edward's man in the administrative genius department. Robert was probably the same age as Edward. He was a clerk who had come up through Edward's household, and when Henry died, he was effectively made leader of the regency while Edward was abroad. Official documents themselves speak of him as, quote, occupying the king's place in England. So one of Edward's first acts in 1274 was to recognise this and make him chancellor. Burnell was already the Bishop of Bath and Wells, and Edward had already tried to get him promoted to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Unfortunately, while Burnell was clearly a charming and effective man, he also hadn't managed to live quite within the rules of the church. Namely, he had a long-standing mistress called Juliana, and a number of daughters who he managed to marry off into wealthy families. But while he never managed to talk the Pope into giving him that top slot, he nevertheless remained one of the most powerful men in England until his death in 1292, so much so that one of the parliaments was actually held in his barn back home in Shropshire, in his back garden. And then again, the magnates around Edward were relatively young and relatively fresh-faced. You've got about ten earls at this time, four of them were in their twenties, and four of them were in their thirties. Once the Earl of Hereford had popped his clogs, John of Warren, the Earl of Surrey, would be the oldest at just forty-three. 
By and large, these guys get on with each other and with the king, especially at the start of the reign, though there are some choppier waters ahead. Edward does what his father so completely failed to do. He created a sense of shared solidarity and purpose amongst this group. In the main, this was due to the day-to-day job of making sure that patronage was well handled. He made sure he didn't fall into the same trap as Dad had by rewarding one faction over another. In fact, as part of his drive to restore royal finances, his aim was to bring lands back into the royal domain, not to hand them out. So basically, Edward was as mean as mouse droppings. But he was at least as mean as mouse droppings to everyone. Rather more inspiringly, he used the legend of Arthur to build this sense of esprit de corps. Now the monks of Glastonbury, with that great commercial nous that is such a feature of the medieval church, had created a legend that Arthur and Guinevere had been buried at Glastonbury, after grovelling around in the churchyard to find a suitable pair of skeletons, of course. Since then, happily enough, there had been a steady stream of donations and gifts. Now Edward, like any red-blooded male, loved the whole Arthur and his knights thing, just like most of his mates. And in 1278, he appeared at the abbey to see the bodies. He had the caskets opened. A local chronicler wrote, There, in two caskets, were found the bones of the said king of wondrous size, and those of Guinevere of marvellous beauty. Now, don't ask me what a beautiful bone looks like, but either way, Edward wrapped Arthur's bones in silk, while his wife, Eleanor of Castile, did the same for Guinevere. They had a bit of a do and a knees up, and then the bones were reburied. In 1290, Edward famously used a tournament to recreate his own round table in the hall at Winchester, which you can still see today should you go there. All of this stuff is so unlike Henry III, but so very like what will follow with Edward III. There's a feeling of fellowship and an ethos that had been completely lacking before. While we're wandering through Edward and his companions, let's not forget his wife, Eleanor of Castile. There's no doubt that Eleanor and Edward loved each other, and that she was a great source of strength for him. Eleanor never got involved in politics in the way that her mother had, and plus she brought no foreign relatives with her to offend anyone. She and Edward were a team. She stayed with Edward on most of his ventures, and for example, after the defeat at Lewis she'd gone straight to France and tried to get an army together. So her death in 1290 would hit Edward very hard. But that's not to say, by the way, that Eleanor was any more popular than her mother had been, because she wasn't. Edward was determined to restore the royal finances. So there would be no handouts, and Eleanor needed to get herself set up on her own. So she does very much the same thing as her mother did. She floated around the land market like a vulture waiting to pounce. There was nothing she liked better than to find a landed knight on his uppers, owing money to the Jews, so that she could snap up the debt, demand repayment, and force that knight off his land. There's a little contemporary satire that went around. The king would like to get our gold, the queen our fair manners to hold. So, not popular. But like Edward, you couldn't ignore her, and her time at Edward's side coincided with the most effective years of his reign. OK, so back to where we started, and a bit of a summary at. 
Edward faced a kingdom that was not in the best nick. Not a lot of money, magnates doing pretty much what they liked. Rising crime and a wave of resentment from the lower orders. And people beginning to think of de Montfort's time as something of a golden age. In those early years, Edward plays his hand with great skill and determination. He's careful to stay within the letter of the law, and by so doing, makes a contribution to the creation of a parliamentary state built on the rule of law. But he's not above a bit of judicious sneakiness and brutality where required. So, where to start? Firstly, he doesn't like or trust London. He was well aware that London is an important place, and so he gets himself ready for any trouble. He therefore spent £21,000 extending the Tower of London to pretty much the same extent that you see today. The rest of his efforts were all about saving money, though, rather than spending it. We've mentioned that the royal domain had shrunk over the years, and he does all he can to stick that particular Humpty back together again. For example, he becomes something of an ambulance chaser. If you're getting on a bit, or maybe not as healthy as you once were, and didn't have any heirs, you might find yourself attracting the attentions of the king. So, if Edward sidled up to you and he didn't know why, it might be worth just getting yourself a health check. The best example of this is one Isabella de Forts, Countess of Devon and O'Mal, richest woman in England. Isabel's quite an interesting character in her own right. She'd been married to William de Forts, the Count of O'Mal, at the tender age of 11, but by the time she was 23, he'd popped off. Despite his early death, Isabella already had six children, and her husband's death made her a very wealthy woman indeed. Even better, or worse, depending on how you look at it and who you are, her brother, the Earl of Devon, died in 1262, and this made her even richer. A rich, 25-year-old widow was, of course, a prime target for predators. The first one came in the form of Simon de Montfort Jr., but Isabella was done with marriage, and no doubt loving this wealthy, independent woman bit. So she hid in a priory in Hampshire, and later in Wales, until that threat had disappeared. The next suitor was Edmund Crouchback, younger brother of Edward, now made Earl of Lancaster. Remember that, folks? Earl of Lancaster, first whiff of the Wars of the Roses. Anyway, despite the marriage being announced in 1268, Isabella managed to dodge that to boot. In 1276, Edward tried and failed to talk her into selling him her southern lands, but in 1293, she was eventually taken ill at Lambeth in South London. As she lay dying, one of Edward's servants appeared at her bedside and read her out a charter confirming the sales of her lands. Now, all Isabella's six children had died before her, so she agreed. She had her lady of the bedchamber seal it and the job was done, and her rather distant heir was disinherited. It's all just a bit suspect and dicey. Not in any way illegal, you understand, but there's a definite smell of dead fish somewhere. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Something similar happens with Roger Biggard, the Earl of Norfolk. Roger was the son of Hugh Biggard, sometime Justicia under Henry III and colleague of de Montfort. In 1302, Roger agreed to entail his estate on the heirs of his body. This effectively meant that his brother John was disinherited. Roger duly died childless in 1306, and all the lands reverted to the crown. Sweet and fishy. Do not let me give you the wrong impression, though, that Edward was just an underhand enforcer, a sort of thuggish gangland boss because elsewhere he succeeds by building a genuine partnership between crown and people. Soon after the coronation, he had Burnell replace all the sheriffs, and thereby sent a clear signal that change was underway. He did this at least partly because of what comes next. In 1274-5, he launched a great inquiry. Now, I feel slightly guilty about the word air that I keep dropping in, So just to make sure I've explained this well enough, the heir is a journey or circuit by a royal justice doing his thing. De Montfort and the barons had used the heir as a way of uncovering complaints against royal officials. Henry had used the heir as a way of raising revenue. Then it had been abandoned, since Henry lacked the gumption to push it through anymore. Now Edward declared there would be a general heir as part of a great inquiry. The inquiry would be composed of a long list of questions and carried out by pairs of commissioners travelling round the country. They'd get juries of local people together to answer questions. The reason for all this kerfuffle, announced Edward, was to uncover the abuses of royal officials. And this was the reason why all the sheriffs had been replaced, since it would have been a bit difficult to complain about the bloke who was still in power. Now this Edward was a clever lad, Most of the questions actually concern the king's rights and lands and what service he can expect from them. A crucial aspect of the survey was Edward's attempt to win back the power and lands of the throne as he had promised to do at his coronation. But by presenting it in the way he did, he won brownie points from his people and the chroniclers in a time when brownies didn't even exist. And once again, don't get me wrong, the clear evidence is that Edward was genuine in wanting to reform the practice of royal officials, as we'll see. It's just that he's not above a bit of spin. And we surely can't blame him for that. Hands up anyone out there who can get through the day without a bit of spin. The first result of this survey, drafted by Robert Burnell, was a massive new statute, published at Westminster at Easter 1275. Our Lord the King, it begins greatly wills and desires to set to right the state of the kingdom in the things in which there is need of amendment. The Statute of Westminster has over 50 articles aiming to re-establish law and order in the kingdom. Stiffer penalties are described, the duties of every subject described and clarified. He tries to ensure that local officials behave themselves. For example, Clause 6, which says that fines need to be proportionate to the offence. Clause 5, which is still in force, by the way, which says that elections must be free and without disturbance. 
or Clause 7, which says royal officials will not carry out extortion. Edward and Robert not only knew how to spin, they also knew about promotion and marketing. And again, I'm not being critical. It's a sign of Edward's genuine and greater concern for ruling with the consent of a wider community of the realm that he feels the need to communicate. One of Edward's achievements is that by the end of the realm, for good or ill, the crown is seen as the expression of England and the leader of the English again. This was a role severely under threat by the end of Henry's reign when the monarchy was deeply disconnected with its people and appeared more as a predator than as a leader. So, the Statute of Westminster consciously tells us that it is designed, and I quote, for the common good and for the relief of those who are oppressed. Edward had the statute read aloud in every court and marketplace all over the country. Then he puts together the biggest parliament ever conducted. The Parliament of 1275 is a landmark in a couple of ways. On the one hand, it's a whopper. Over 800 representatives, including knights and burgesses from the towns, as well as your vanilla team of earls, barons, bishops and abbots. Not only that, Edward actually seems to be calling Parliament not just because he needs cash, but because he genuinely wants to talk to it and get the consent of his subjects. So the statute was presented and discussed. But even more impressively, Edward encouraged people to come to Parliament with their complaints in the form of petitions so that they could be acted on. Good Lord, I mean good Lord. Henry would have rather eaten his own liver. And finally, Edward actually followed these complaints up. He either made decisions there and then, or appointed a judge to oye et termine the case, i.e. hear and determine the case. Petitions or complaints now become a standard and immensely successful part of the parliamentary process, so much so that later in his reign he has to impose some restrictions, or there'd have been no chance to conduct any business. So, it's a triumph. Edward succeeded very quickly in re-establishing a genuine connection with his people from knight to magnate. But of course, while Parliament was not just about money, it was of course also about money. Edward had his money problem to solve. At this Parliament, he started with customs, and we see the other side of Edward in this. Edward had not been a happy Hector when, while he was away, the merchants had basically ignored the embargo he had ordered on wool exports to the continent. In a slightly whiny but also scary way, he'd complained that this lack of compliance had made him a laughing stock, and that was not the kind of stock he had a mind to be. So, the iron fist and velvet glove bit for the merchants of Parliament was that if they could see their way clear to helping their king out, they might not find themselves severely punished for their recent transgression. Put this way, the merchants and Parliament duly coughed up and agreed to a customs duty of a third of a pound on every exported sack of wool. This was not a massive imposition, something like 3%. But at a stroke, Edward had transformed the ordinary royal finances. Every year, he had an additional income of £10,000 from England and £1,000 from Ireland. So, that was a good step forward. But Edward had spent a shedload of cash on the crusade and a shedload in Gascony. He needed to wipe the slate clean, 
and this meant another general tax. This was the objective of the next Parliament in the autumn of 1275. At the same time, purely by coincidence of course, I don't think, Edward decided to take the highly popular and equally highly disreputable step of banning the Jews from any kind of money lending. The usuries of the Jews, declared the statute's opening, had led to many evils and instances of disinheriting good men of the land. Now the Jews were expected to live, and I quote, by lawful trade and by their labour. Again, context is everything in history, and it doesn't do to be overcritical of Edward in this. This was not just playing to the galleries. There was a serious issue that needed resolving. Plus, Edward recognised that the Jewish community would struggle and needed help. So, they had 15 years to achieve this change. He took the Jews under royal protection and ordered his sheriffs, and I quote, that none shall do them harm or damage or wrong in their bodies or in their goods. But at the same time, this is a period when Christian hatred and suspicion of the Jews is growing throughout Europe. And Edward does nothing to quench those flames. The Jews now have to wear a badge of yellow felt to distinguish them. Jews could now only live in royal towns and cities, and no Christians were to live among them. Hate it or loathe it, the writing was now on the wall, and the Jewish community also feared this was the case, and they petitioned Edward to change his act, but he wouldn't. As far as the Christians were concerned, though, this was a triumph. And in the rosy, happy glow, Edward asked for and got a tax of one fifteenth, which would yield a stonking 80,000 quid. Seen in the context of Henry's consistent, frequent and abject rejection by Parliament in the matter of taxation, this was an absolute triumph. Not that this would be the end of Edward's money problems, but it certainly solved them for the moment. Of even more long-term significance, though, was the relationship with the Riccardi of Luca. Now, I'm aware we've covered this in the social and economic episodes not a million years ago, so I won't go on about it. But it will be a feature of English history that we had a bit of a talent for finance, which at key times allowed us to mobilise financial resources in a far more effective way than our competitors, and therefore overcome larger, richer opponents. And to a degree, it starts here. Basically, Edward has a relationship up to 1290 that allows him to call on credit at any time from the Riccardi. In return, the Riccardi were given the right to manage the receipt of customs revenues. The relationship gave a smoothness and stability to royal finances that was unheard of in previous reigns. It also gave Edward some real independence. It meant he didn't have to keep on going cap in hand to Parliament for more money and Edward kept trying also to find regular sources of royal revenue. Another one he tried in 1278 was called Distraint of Knighthood. Basically, everyone who was eligible had to become a knight by Christmas or else. Now, as we've discussed before, being a knight was an expensive, time-consuming business. So Edward kindly agreed to let knights buy themselves out of the thing if they wanted. Which was the point of the whole episode from the start anyway. But hate it or loathe it, these kinds of feudal dues were simply no longer big enough to make a real difference. There was one initiative that did yield a major windfall, and at the same time 
do some genuine good. And this was the 1278 reform of the coinage. Every so often we've mentioned the importance of a good coinage for trade and there's a close correlation between the strength and authority of the crown and the quality of the coinage. So you won't be surprised to hear that when Edward came to the throne, the coinage was generally speaking pants. What goes on is something called clipping. Every time a coin comes your way, you chip a tiny bit off and keep it. The general problem with this was that it pushed up prices because the actual value of the silver was lower than the face value of the coin, which in turn deterred foreign merchants, if foreign coin was better quality, and also made tax collecting more difficult. Given all the fuss of the last reign, there'd been no general reminting for 30 years, which meant that the currency was really poor quality. All of this was reason enough to have a good old remint. And in addition, the king got to charge a small fee along the way. Edward went one step further, though. If he could catch people actually doing the clipping, he could also prosecute them, clip bits off them, and confiscate their property. So he sent two clerks off into the countryside to find people wanting to sell him melted silver. Now, there's a word for that, I think. Oh, yes, entrapment. And then in November 1278 came the sting. Spookily, there turned out to be far more Jewish clippers than Christian. Close to 300 Jews had their heads clipped off, as opposed to merely 29 Christians. There doesn't seem to be much doubt that this reflects an anti-Jewish bias. Edward probably felt pretty happy with the whole exercise, though, with a profit of £36,000. But, from entrapment to anti-Semitism, it reflects a strand of brutality in Edward's character, which we'll see plenty more of. We should remember, of course, that Henry I had also been pretty brutal towards moneyers on the make. They'd lost their hands, in some cases genitalia. But even Henry hadn't executed and entrapped them. Flushed by this success, Edward returned to the matter of royal lands and rights. And in 1278-9, his inquiries were relaunched. From 1279 also, the so-called Hundred Rolls began to be produced. The Hundred Rolls are the results of the survey, and although a lot of them have been destroyed or lost, it's very likely that the survey was complete across the country, and it was therefore a survey that puts even Doomsday in the shade. The process began to be known as the Quo Warranto Inquiry, from the Latin question asked by the royal officials, by what warrant, Quo Warranto? Basically, the magnates were being asked to confirm all their rights and privileges so that Edward could take back the ones they'd nicked from the crown. Later in the reign, Quo Warranto will become a piece of grit in the oyster of the realm. But we'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. In the round, though, there's little doubt that in the first years of Edward's reign, he re-established the monarchy and its finances on a firmer footing than we'd seen since the beginning of the century. Which was a good thing because trouble was brewing in the west, in the fastness of the Welsh hills. And that will come to next week. Thanks very much to everyone who has commented on iTunes, by email, or on the website or Facebook. Very much appreciated, as always. Special thanks to you donators this week, Henry, Monica, Paul and David, and a special mensch for David Nolan, who every month donates through the Flatter button on the website. Thank you, David. It's much appreciated. That's it for this week then, everyone. Good luck and have a great week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.